we find ourselves in the book of Leviticus tonight. If y'all need a Bible, uh, we found the we found the notebooks. By the way, I bet you I bet you yours is in there. If y'all need the handy dandy handout sheet, I, I have some Leviticus over here. Is that the plural of Leviticus? I don't know. Small joke. Yeah. <laughs> We're still in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, is where we find ourselves tonight. Before we dive in to the book of Leviticus and uh, talk about it a little bit, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do come to you thankful, uh, thankful that we can open up your word. Thankful that we can see what it is that you have for us there. Uh, Primarily, salvation by your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that by his own words, we see uh, that not only the prophets and the Psalms, but also the law was given that it might reveal Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that we would see Jesus tonight. We would see that good news that saves tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I kind of like this with the the kind of intense background organ music. It's, fit, it's almost fitting for the book of Leviticus, right? As we open up and, uh, and see what the Lord has for us. Perhaps a little frightening. Uh, uh, enough jokes. Uh, I feel like it's going to be a wacky night, so we may just need to buckle up. Uh, Leviticus, for those of you who don't feel this, I'm, I'm thankful. But oftentimes, Leviticus can feel unapproachable you know in genesis we get uh you know we get the 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 story of our forefathers abraham isaac and jacob we get israel we get story after story of these wonderful uh events that the lord is you know playing out Uh, we get the the many colored coat and we get all of these other things uh, you know, Abraham and Isaac on a mountain, and, and in Exodus even, we get these, these grand miracles, right? Uh, uh, the, these ten plagues, and God's deliverance from Pharaoh of his people. And, and there's manna raining down from heaven, and there's giant grapes, and there's giants, and there's people coming and attacking, and there's war. And then we get to Leviticus, and there are burnt offerings, and there are grain offerings, and there are peace offerings, and there's sin and guilt offering. There's wave offerings. There's some salt offerings. Uh, there, there are uh, laws uh, that, that we are to adhere to, uh, well, that God's people were to adhere to. Uh, and, it, and as we read it and, and we see some of these, what we can feel like are very antiquated laws and a very antiquated ideas of how God's people were operating, uh, we can feel very far removed from it, as opposed to, say, a story like Abraham the father and Isaac the son and God providing a ram in the thicket. Uh, It can be sometimes unapproachable, but I I really believe that with just a few, just just a, a couple overarching themes grasped uh, that Leviticus will not only be accessible, will be approachable, but it will be very devotional. Uh, you know, I was, when I was praying, I, I was praying very particularly that, that God uh, would reveal to us how Christ is revealed because Jesus Christ himself said that he is revealed in the law 
And what we get in Leviticus is the ceremonial law. We get the law par excellence, as it were. Uh, uh, We get almost all law. Uh, And so the goal, uh, as we go into tonight's survey of Leviticus, is not not to necessarily go through each and every individual commandment or each and every individual uh, offering and the nuances of such, that would be a a semester-long survey on just one book. Uh, That would just be a Bible study. Uh, The goal is for us to start to get some of these overarching themes. Uh, One theme is going to be ceremonial law. We'll cover that first. Uh, Another theme is moral law. Uh, And and we need to start to distinguish what I mean by ceremonial and moral. That's very important in a reading of the Old Testament. It's very important in the reading of the New Testament uh, because, because it comes up uh, from Jesus' own lips to Peter and Paul uh, to almost all of the New Testament. They're referring back to these different pieces of the law, ceremonial and moral, and then to some, in some regard, kingly. We won't get there yet. We'll get there in Deuteronomy and, and elsewhere. But, uh, so we'll talk about the, the ceremonial and the moral law. And then finally, uh, we'll cover what all of y'all most desperately want to cover, I know, at the very bottom of our handout, the offerings and how they actually work. You know, with these themes in hand, uh, it won't be, uh, it won't be uh, something nerve-wracking or something undevotional uh, when you open up and, for instance, your yearly reading is uh, from Leviticus and you're thinking, oh, brother, I guess I'll just try to read through and then maybe I'll move on to Deuteronomy or something like that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, sometimes it can feel like that, but, but with these in hand, I think we'll do just fine. So first, the ceremonial law. Let's talk about it in general. Uh, ceremonial law implies that there are ceremonies happening. Uh, we see this in the, the sacrificial system. We see this in the temple system. You think about uh, why does God command Aaron to wear all the vestments that he wears with the individual stones and the colors of the stone? Why are you supposed to put the blood on the earlobe? Why are you supposed to put it on your two big toes? Why are you supposed to, uh, well, not eat pig, for instance, but you can eat cow, uh, but you can't eat an owl, but you can't eat a chicken. Uh, what, what, are, what are we doing? Uh, and, and, you know, the this, this ceremonial law uh, is God providing for us and revealing to us uh, this conception of clean and unclean, of holy and unholy. Uh, there are these two kind of uh, uh, sides to this. Uh, it's a spectrum, and on one side there is holiness, purity, and on the other side, uh, there is unholiness, there is uncleanliness, uh, there is pollution and corruption. With the ceremonial law, God is revealing, and you'll see this in your, I don't want to cover too much of this because you can read it on your own, but it's important for us to kind of get to it. With the ceremonial law, we start to see what it takes for God's people to actually dwell with God. We sometimes can assume fellowship with God, uh, but uh, an unclean entity that comes before the presence of God is utterly destroyed immediately. Uh, God has no time uh, and, and no uh, remorse at all when something unclean comes into his presence. It, it is simply done away with. God is totally good. Evil cannot be in his presence. Uh, and so... You know, when we say we come before the throne of grace, for instance, there's a lot more that goes into that. And this ceremonial law gives us a tangible expression of it from the Old Testament. Of course, we're assuming that Jesus fulfills it 
totally for us, and we'll, we'll see how that plays out. But let's just look at a few examples of the ceremonial law. I mentioned clean and unclean animals. Let's just look at Leviticus 11 and see what uh, God's word says about it. Leviticus 11. We'll just read uh, a couple of verses, uh, 1 through 8. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud, among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, uh, you shall not eat these, the camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. And then he goes on to say, these you may eat. Here's the point. Uh, we sometimes can fall into the trap of seeking to justify scripture. Well, this is simple. We aren't supposed to eat pig because they didn't really have good cooking utensils then. They didn't have good hygiene. So when you cook a pig, you're going to get sick if you get that meat on you. Much worse than beef. Much worse. Am I right? And then you say, oh, scientifically, that makes sense. Yes, yes, of course. Well, uh, I don't know about y'all, but I'm not going to go lick any raw chicken anytime soon. Uh, chicken falls. I'm not going to lick any raw beef either. Uh, you know, even if I wash my hands after that, uh, there's serious sickness that comes from raw meat. And so we need to be careful about seeking to justify scripture. What ceremonial law is doing, and we'll see it again in another example, but uh, what ceremonial law is doing is God is giving a commandment saying, this I have set apart for you. This I have not. The things that are set apart, please obey and eat. The things that I have not, do not eat. They are unclean. They have been, uh, by my command, deemed so. Uh, God is sovereign. He has chosen to reveal himself in this way. Uh, he said, don't eat pig. Thank the Lord that he uh, revealed what this all meant later on. And we saw that Peter uh, was even told to eat that pig. And now we can have barbecue until we get full uh, like we like to do in the South. But uh, this reality, uh, there, there's not necessarily, we don't need scientific judgment. Uh, the ceremonial law uh, and, and what God is revealing uh, is not necessarily scientific uh, for the Israelites' health or something like that. Uh, the reality is that God is, is seeking to reveal himself and seeking to reveal his otherness, his holiness, and seeking to reveal how God's people might participate in what he is commanding. Let's use another example to see uh, maybe ev even more what I mean. Uh, two animals, two grains, and two, uh, two pieces of clothing. Chapter 19. 1919. There must be some secret that we're going to find within 1919, right? You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. The secular world, they hate this verse. Uh, it, it just drives them nuts. And, and it's because if we're not operating in that paradigm that I was just speaking of, uh, if, the, if the reason is not necessarily scientific, uh, if the reason is not necessarily justified by some natural consequence of the action of uh, perhaps if we combine two seeds, it'll be bad you know, if a, uh, if a purple flower blooms instead of red and blue or something like that. that that's not what God had in mind. Uh, God was seeking to reveal in this ceremonial law 
Listen, don't put cotton and silk together in a dress shirt because God is pure, God is one, and he, and in this case, if I would be so bold, and, and to command them and say, I, I am revealing myself in the purity of your clothing. Wear cotton or wear silk, you choose. Uh, it, it's not, it's not a, a, a scientific commandment given from on high uh, that, that if we do these things, you know, uh, some scary event will happen with the crossing of breeds or something like that. My father-in-law uh, has beef cattle, and, and he breeds two different kinds of cows, for instance, now. Oh, he is in great sin. No, uh, and, and this is an important part before we, before we move into the moral law. Uh, the ceremonial law, and you'll see this. I'm, it's going to feel like I cover it fast, but, but you'll see this. The context and the connection part of... Um, of this handout, I've expanded a little bit because it's important for us to start to get these concepts. But, but we see that, that what these laws were revealing to us uh, was God's otherness and God's holiness and God's cleanliness. And, and as God was commanding these very particular commandments, uh, very restrictive commandments upon God's people, uh, this separation, this difference, uh, to, to obey uh, and, and, to, and to continue to seek to obey. Well, we see a couple things. The first thing we see is our inability to obey. Uh, we fall and we sin often. It's, you know, I think we do all right with the one, the one cloth, you know, cotton. I think, we could, I think we could make it with that one. But it would be very difficult for some of these other commandments to obey them constantly. And you see this uh, fall in if you, if you read through Leviticus. Well, if you're unclean, Go do this offering, and we'll get to that uh, at the end. If you're, if you have committed an accidental, an unintentional sin, is what it calls it. But we kind of do that often. One that's not malicious, uh, one that's not done uh, in unbelief, one that as believers we fall into all the time. Right? Uh, who of us have not sinned uh, in the past hour, day, week? Uh, I think we could draw to mind these these ways that we've fallen, and yet uh, we might say unintentionally. Uh, we might be able to say that we could repent of that. You'll, you'll see these words used in Leviticus as you read through it and as you study on your own. And, and so God is seeking to reveal in these ceremonial laws the need for these sacrifices, uh, the need for the Lamb of God, for Jesus, uh, as you'd see, and as we'll see when we get to the end uh, with the offerings. It, it's, it, it's the moment in time when we come up against the holiness of God and, and that call, uh, if you look on the solid rock verses, uh, Leviticus 11:44, and then see also 19, 2, 27, 20, 26, 21, 8, be holy for I am holy. And our answer, I cannot, I can't do it. Well, I have provided for you offerings and sacrifices that you are to do. And as you do that, you can make atonement for your sin. And as you make atonement for your sin, you'll be put back into a clean state. And as you're in a clean state, you can then come and worship me uh, freely and with peace. And you can have fellowship. And yet, if you fall again, here is the way that you can continue forward. And all of this uh, is meant to be a continual reminder. Uh, first, well, that we're sinners. But there's also very good news. God provides. And, and that's where Jesus comes into play. You know, God God provides here in these shadows, in these, uh, 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 these many different ways that we see uh, uh, Jesus b beginning to fulfill all of these things. Uh, I'll just quote quickly from the middle of this connections 
uh, portion of our handout. You know, John the Baptist cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God. You know, the, the Lamb of God. Why did he use that terminology? Where did he get that from? The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the great high priest. Not only is Jesus the great high priest, Jesus is also the ultimate sacrifice. And so as Jesus is is working and willing his way, uh, uh, seeking to make sacrifice for us, he is indeed sacrificing himself uh, on the altar to make atonement, that is payment for our sins. Uh, All of this terminology, all of this imagery is coming from these shadows that we see playing themselves out in Leviticus. It's this ceremonial law that Jesus is fulfilling. If y'all have questions, by the way, feel free to ask. There can be some things that I'm going to either pass over uh, or or, uh, maybe address very quickly. So if you hear something and you wonder, well, I'd like to know more about that. We can pause for a second and, and answer uh, any questions that y'all have. But, but Jesus is fulfilling all of this ceremonial law that's being given to us here in Leviticus, which is why the temple is passing away in Jesus' time, which is why Jesus is calling them to a higher standard. Uh, in some of his sermons, he says you need to be holier than even all of, you know, he speaks of the Pharisees, which are the most religious of the Jews. Uh, they're, they're kind of fulfilling the Levitical code uh, in a way that is, is not necessarily godly because they've lost what we're going to talk about next, which is the moral law. The, the ceremonial law is playing itself out. There are all these commandments. There are all these sacrifices. There are all these offerings. Uh, there are these vestments. There are these uh, commands for how we come in, uh, for what order we do things in, for how we clean our houses, for how we plant our fields, for how we wear our clothes, and on and on. But... Within all of that, there is a continual and overarching morality, and that's the moral law. Uh, What's the second greatest commandment? Y'all familiar with the first one? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the second one? Love your neighbor. neighbor. It's it's in Leviticus. Jesus is quoting Leviticus. It's so easy as as we we feel the unapproachableness of the ceremonial law to forget that within this field uh, that God is revealing Jesus to us with, the ceremony, within these things that are happening, God is still calling us to live lives of holiness. He is saying, be holy for I am holy. How does this work? It works by loving our neighbor. Uh, God calls us to do it. You know, Jesus did it later, but it was a couple of, Thousand, I mean, a couple hundred years removed, uh, uh, almost a thousand years. Uh, God is, is already laying this moral law, this reality that, that there are ethics at play, that there are uh, life realities. You know, sometimes ethics can be removed. <laughs> this is how we really live. We really love our neighbors. It's a, it's a true call. Uh, and the people of Jesus' time forgot about it. The people of Moses' time forget about it. The people of our time forget about it, and we forget about it. And we're constantly called, uh, not only to the first great commandment, but the outpouring of loving our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is loving our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, We seek to pour out as Jesus poured out. Uh, This moral law, I I mentioned it. Let's just look. I I want you all to know where it's at. 1918. Uh, I mentioned before (laughs) the, the culture around us. They hate 1919 because 1918 and 1919 are right next to each other. And it it just confounds them that God could command us in such a moral aspect 
to love our neighbors as ourselves. What a wonderful commandment. And then he just makes himself look like a fool with 1919 because we're not supposed to breed cows with a different breed. Ah, if only God were smarter, right? That's what they think uh, because it ruins the testimony of the scriptures. But it doesn't uh, because this moral law that's playing itself out in our lives uh, is only possible through the revelation of God's holiness that is then wrought in us by Jesus Christ, and that is revealed in the purity and the holiness of Leviticus 19.19. And so for Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourselves, to be right next to Leviticus 19.19, don't wear a shirt with cotton and silk. For those to be right together, uh, is a, is, is, <laughs> it's not a scary thing for Christians. It's a wonderful juxtaposition of the gospel, of God's holiness and, and otherness and, and his, uh, his commandment to be set apart and to obey him. And within that, this, this very real tangibleness of ethics playing itself out and loving our neighbors. Uh, they go hand in hand, and it's so wonderful. It's one of the profound moments for our worldview. And here it is in Leviticus, uh, that very unapproachable. I used quotes, by the way, uh, for those who are listening online. Uh, unapproachable books of the Bible. Uh, here's another, another text for this kind of theme of the moral law, uh, 18 verse 5, uh, chapter 18 verse 5. And, and again, there, there's so much within Leviticus that, that lays out these different portions of commands. I, I went back and forth in my solid rock verses uh, to either give y'all kind of big chunks and summarize them like, say, a study Bible. But uh, I, went, I went for a kind of a few less. But, but if you'll notice, these, these verses are very important for us because they show that juxtaposition that I was just talking about uh, between this, this ceremonial and this moral. Chapter 18, verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Here we have a call. Now, we just had the, the birthday, the 500th birthday of the Reformation. The Reformation being a movement where uh, men and women uh, found scripture, realized that it was saying something very wonderful. That we can be saved and that we can have confidence and that we can have all of this because it is God who saves. And it is God who, who continues to sustain and preserve and so, as we come to a verse like this, 18, verse 5, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. Uh, we think to ourselves, well, this is just the Old Testament. You know, they thought they had to work for their salvation, but we know better. We know that uh, by grace, through faith, are we saved, and it's a gift given to us from God. We, we know that. But, but Paul uses this, and it's very important. Because this is how we're saved. This is the, the nuts and the bolts of our salvation. Jesus Christ came to this earth as a little babe, but as he grew in wisdom and stature before men, he lived a perfect life. He obeyed, if we were to use these words, all God's statutes and rules. And as he did that, he continued in this life of perfection, revealing to us uh, what this ceremonial law was talking about himself. And he revealed to us the depth of the moral law and how we have fallen quite short of what it really means. And as he's revealing all of these things, he's continuing to march towards somewhere. 
His disciples don't understand it. The Pharisees and scribes don't understand it. Nobody understands it except for Jesus. And as he continues forward, he says, listen, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to die for you. And he goes. And he dies. A perfect lamb without blemish or spot. And he goes and he sacrifices himself. He makes atonement for us. And as he does so, and as we profess faith, we recognize that all the things that he said about the ceremonial law being fulfilled have been fulfilled. And as the, the, you know, the temple curtain, you remember when he was crucified, was torn? Ah, so too is that ceremonial law torn away. And light shines through as, uh, uh, as the sun shines behind dark clouds as they move away. And we see the reality that was pointing at our face all along. That Jesus is God, and that Jesus was saying, I'm going to die for you, and all of Scripture is saying that. Uh, It's quite a wonderful reality, uh, and we see it playing out here, uh, and yet there is a moral call. Uh, Chapter 18, verse 5, do these things and you shall live. Well, we look to Christ and we see it ultimately fulfilled, and yet Christ has called us to obey. We've got some Bible study guys here. On Tuesday morning, we've been in John 14, and we've been talking about these things because, uh, uh, you know, in the Gospel of John and in moving forward, it's very obvious that Jesus Christ is calling us to not only have faith in him, but to recognize and hold on to the power that he has given us and the desire that he has given us to then live lives in obedience to him, that we can actually do it. By his grace. Uh, I I say it like this sometimes. Martin Luther said it way better, but I always butcher the quote. uh, So I'm not going to try. But but it's not that we work for salvation. It's that salvation works. Uh, Once we are saved, we we actually continue forward and do things. Uh, We have been called to a life uh, being lived in obedience to God. A moral law. We see these two things playing themselves out in Leviticus uh, ceremonial and moral. And, and remember, these things play themselves out in so many, uh, so many different places in Leviticus. I, I chose just a few uh, for all our purposes here for the survey. So we see these two big themes first, ceremonial and moral. And, and you can find these, and you can find wonderful articles on these. Uh, but hopefully this is giving you uh, a beginning at least to some of the wider pieces of Leviticus. But, but we need one more. A very important one, sacrifices and offerings. Uh, This is the one that I think, I save it for the last because it's the biggest. Uh, But this is the one that makes it feel the most unapproachable for me. I won't speak for anybody else. But when I would read this uh, before seminary, before reading about Leviticus, before pouring myself into Leviticus more than once, uh, it would seem like I would get them confused. I wouldn't know which offering was what. I don't know why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, what in the world does it mean when you've got to do this and that? Well, with, with, just, with just a brief overview uh, of these sacrifices and offerings, it will really give you much confidence. And, and so let's just march through them really quickly. I'm not going to read kind of all of the... Uh, descriptions of them, unless y'all want me to. Uh, That was a joke. Uh, uh, In chapter 1, he dives right in. That is God revealing to Moses. And and if y'all recall at this point in the story, Exodus just finished. Uh, This has been a couple weeks since we've gathered. But at the end of Exodus, the tabernacle was built. 
Not only was the tabernacle built, but God himself descended. And not only did God himself descend, he dwelt in the midst of his people. And so now Leviticus, boom, here we are with Leviticus. And all of a sudden, all these commands for offerings and oblations begin. And the reason why is because God wants to dwell with his people, has chosen his people, and is desirous to be with his people. But his people are sinful, and he cannot dwell in the midst of sin, if you recall what I was saying earlier. And so he gives a way forward. And this way forward, we see the burnt offerings in chapter 1. And this is laid out a little bit in the offerings down the little kind of chain. Uh, We see the burnt offerings in 1, the grain offerings in chapter 2, the peace offerings in chapter 3, and then the sin and the guilt offerings in kind of 4, 5, and a bit of 6. I I didn't include that there. It's just a tiny bit of 6. But... But really, the list would start with sin and guilt offerings. And let's go to, let's go to chapter, uh, chapter 8 to help us see this. In chapter, I know, y'all are laughing. Uh, in chapter 8, we get, it'll, be, it'll make sense to you when I explain it. In chapter 8, it's Aaron's ordination. Uh, Aaron, Moses' brother, the high priest of Israel. How did he become the high priest? God said he would be the high priest. Uh, and so God reveals to Moses, the prophet, acting as the high priest, Uh, God reveals to Moses how he is to go about ordaining Aaron into the priesthood. And so we actually get all four. uh, There's five. Sin and guilt are kind of combined. You see that on the list. But but we get get all four of these offerings in the same place. Uh, This is chapter 8. Let's look. uh, And we'll we'll just hit the... The individual verses, we won't read uh, through all of it. 8.14, 8.14. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. So, to begin with, this sin offering, uh, uh, an easy way to explain it is, is specific atonement. What have you done today or this last week that required repentance? Maybe if you haven't repented for any specific things, you should think about it. What have you done specifically, perhaps to another, perhaps by yourself before God? What, what is it that you must make repentance for? That's the sin offering, uh, uh, the guilt offering. Get the, the difference between sin and guilt, by the way, sin offering is when no one else is affected. The guilt offering, uh, I was neglectful and I killed my neighbor's cow. I need to repay him with a cow. And so I would go and I would offer before the Lord and then also make reparation. And so that's the difference between sin and guilt. But, but that's the first step. What specific things that you can recall have you done? Repent of those. So we see the sin offering in 1814. Uh, the burnt offering comes next, 1818. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands uh, on the head of the ram. An easy way uh, for perhaps description of the burnt offering, my my Old Testament professor would be rolling over uh, in his bed if he knew I was giving such brief uh, explanations of these things. But I trust no one will tell Max Roglin, Rick. Uh, <laughs> Rick knows my Old Testament professor from seminary. The burn offering is general atonement. I cannot recall what I have done, but I know that I have done something. <laughs> uh, I have repented of the things that I, that I can recall, but I know that I've sinned against Rebecca. Rebecca. 
I, I know it. I know that she's been frustrated with me. And so I offer a burnt offering before you, O oh God, uh, that I might be able to move forward into right and pleasant worship with you. Uh, it, it's, it's general. It, it's not specific. That, that's why you get it in chapter 1. It's because, it's because that's the beginning. It, it's something that happens every morning and every evening, the burnt offering. And, and along with the burnt offering is the grain offering. Because as we repent of our sins, well, we don't just uh, repent generally, uh, but we also praise God. And we renew our vigor. Uh, and we seek him more. And so with this grain offering, uh, we, we offer burnt uh, for our, 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 the atonement of our sins. We offer grain that it might be a pleasing aroma before God. Uh, so we're seeking to praise him since we are in right standing with God. And so those two, burnt and grain, happen every morning and every evening in the tabernacle of the Lord. Which, by the way, is why most Reformed uh, uh, people try to do things in the morning and in the evening. Uh, and so we see that this reality of, uh, of these kind of two general, general ones with sin, uh, the sin offering or the guilt offering before it to make sure that we can even come into these. And then we get a final one, the peace offering. Oh, by the way, the grain offering is seen in chapter 8 at verse 26. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. Uh, and that's, of course, the Lord often uses this imagery of, of, of a pleasing aroma. This re, uh, uh, and we can, kind of, we can kind of relate, right? When you smell something good, uh, it's, it's a moment, right, for uh, an explanation for us to kind of be able to see what's happening maybe uh, when it's unexplainable. But then we get this peace offering, verse 31. Verse 31 of chapter 8. Moses said to Aaron and his sons, boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting and there eat it. And the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. What, what was different with the peace offering? This is very important, and this is where we'll kind of be ending, uh, though there really is no end, because I expect you all to go home and devotionally read all of Leviticus tonight. Uh, <laughs> wasn't a joke. Uh, that was um, but, but the difference with the peace offering uh, as opposed to the sin offering and the burnt offering and the grain offering is that we partake of the peace offering. We eat that. Some of it is burnt to God, given to God, but some of it is given to us. There is a moment of fellowship, uh, uh, of the breaking of bread, as it were, with a deity. Think about it. Uh, there is no right and better image of what God has done for his people than being able to sit at table with him and eat. What a wonderful and, and, uh, and glorious moment. We see it at the very end in Revelation with the wedding feast. We see it in Exodus when they break bread with God on Mount Sinai. We see it over and over with Jesus when he breaks bread with his disciples, when he feeds the 4,000 and the 5,000, when he says, I am the bread of life. We see over and over this reality and this intimacy that comes with eating. It's why we eat on Wednesday nights, because it's so wonderful to come together in fellowship and we do the same thing with God. Because of what God has done for us. Uh, we, we must repent of our sins. Uh, we must then repent of our sins. right? Uh, those that we know. Those that we don't know. We must then praise God. Because we are drawn to him. Not, not because we feel some, uh, some uh, 
you know, obligation like a slave to a master, but because we're, we're desirous, we're, we're so thankful for, for the sins that are removed from us, that then we praise, and as we praise, God invites us to sit and to eat. What a wonderful image. And that's it. There's a, there's a lot of depth into each of those, the sin offering, the burnt, the grain, and the peace, but that's it. You have the entirety of the sacrificial system before you, on one page. It's not something that's unapproachable. It's not something that, that we uh, just must chalk up to time and, and, never, and never kind of explain it or wonder about it again. I tell you tonight, brothers and sisters, read Leviticus and see the wonderful reality of the gospel play itself out on every page. It, it is quite uh, uh, interesting to read through Leviticus once you have established some of the ins and outs of the ceremonial law, once you have established this reality that there is morality within the ceremonial law, there are still lives that we are living as God is revealing himself to us. Uh, it's almost like a vertical and a horizontal, if that helps you uh, image it in your mind. And it's, and it's all playing out within this beautiful picture of atonement, of payment on our behalf, of sacrifice that is needed we see that ultimately in Jesus Christ. Uh, just two things, and we'll end. The first is very important. Uh, Leviticus 17, 11. You know, th- this is called solid rock verses, you know, this section. And I, I do that because I think they're very important verses. There are some verses in Scripture that, that I believe have really profound ripple effects for every other verse in Scripture. Uh, not to say that, uh, that other parts of the Bible are less. It's more like a first among equals. But we need to know Leviticus 17.11. Uh, it doesn't get as much airtime. Uh, I don't know why because it's so obvious. Uh, look at it with me. Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. (laughs) A life must be shed. Blood must be shed. A life must be given. Uh, Jesus Christ, reading these things, knew immediately. Uh, This reality that he is to go and that this was the, the plan before eternity was of salvation to play itself out, of God's love to be revealed, of God's grace and mercy to be shown, that Jesus Christ might be the just and the justifier at the same time. He goes to the cross and he dies. Behold, the Lamb of God slaughtered for us. There is life in the blood. And as the blood is shed of a perfect man and a perfect God, we then, by faith in him, are brought to salvation. There is life in the blood. To end us out, we'll go to the very last chapter. It's always good to end on the last chapter, right? Uh, Leviticus 26, we get some some blessings and some curses. Uh, If you do these things, I will bless you, says the Lord. Uh, I will keep you in the land. I will make you prosper. I will uh, allow you to have uh, crops that yield uh, ten and a hundredfold, all of these things up. But if you disobey, uh, I will remove you from this land. I'll cause you to go into exile. Uh, for any of us who have uh, any, uh, even just a little bit uh, of Bible knowledge, we, we know where God's people fell. 
Uh, we know that God's people went into exile, that the land was taken away from them, uh, that, that they were in exile for a long time, that when they came back, even though they came back, nothing was quite the same. And yet, God continued to reveal himself as this, as this uh, timing was coming and coming, and Jesus was revealed ultimately when the timing was perfect. But uh, we see at the end of Leviticus 26 of these blessings and these curses, and I have it on the solid rock verses. I have Leviticus 26 because it's very important as a paradigm for the rest of Scripture. We'll see it again in Deuteronomy. It's so important. He repeats himself. Um, but we see it in verse, say, uh, 45 of 26. But I will, uh, for their sake, remember the covenant. This is God speaking. I will, for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God, I and the Lord. And God is promising here, even in the midst of curse, even as he sees his people immediately going astray, he is still promising, I am the Lord, and I will remember the covenant that I promised. And what's that covenant? Well, we see it spanning all the way back through, and we see uh, that it is God saving his people. Uh, the covenant being, of course, a promise with a consequence, but, but it's oftentimes God being the actor. Uh, we break the covenant, and yet God doesn't. And we see it ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, uh, the covenant keeper. And so out of Leviticus 26, that is God making vows to us, I will do this to you. If you obey, I will do this to you. If you disobey, well, then we see the last chapter. Uh, we see vows given to God, uh, laws about vows. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to the Lord invo uh, involving the valuation of purposes, then the valuation of a male, and he goes on and on. And it's all these different vows. Well, for the sake uh, of our purposes and time, the vow offering... Uh, is, is a category of the peace offering. Uh, it's easy to miss that because they're talking about vows and we're thinking to ourselves all these things about vows and what that means. But, but in the scheme of things, if you look at it, it's sin and guilt, burnt, grain, peace. The vow offering is a peace offering. And so even after this, this call to obedience, and then what seems like after that in, ver in chapter 26, this kind of remarkable statement saying about you're not going to obey and you're going to get sent into exile, but I won't forget you. Uh, kind of in this moment of, wait a second, Lord, what? We come into the vows at the very end and we come into the peace offerings at the very end. And what are we doing? We are fellowshipping with God. At the very end, God is revealing to Moses what he wants us most, uh, uh, what he wants us most to see, which is that by his will, and by his revelation, and by his working, and by his giving us all of these things, we can have fellowship with our God. We are creatures created by him in his own image, and we are very desirous to be with him. He has given us that path. In Jesus Christ, with all of these shadows revealing Jesus, even here, tabernacle, priestly clothes, even two types of different cows, we can see Jesus clearly revealed if we hold on to these overarching themes. I hope this helps as you dive into Leviticus. Maybe I, you know, maybe I will be serious. Perhaps open it up if you're not studying a book of the Bible personally right now or privately and see what Leviticus might have for you, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here, uh, the of uh, being made today.
Yeah. Yeah, you know, the modern Jew, they, they, take, a, they take a halfway stance. The temple's gone. Uh, you know, the, the big temple was destroyed a couple times, but, but ultimately destroyed in, in kind of 70-ish A.D. And, and so now they kind of flipped over to a, to a, a church stance, basically. These, these uh, 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 I'm blanking on the name, but some, one of y'all know it. Uh, they meet synagogue. Uh, they meet in their synagogues with rabbis, and, and they basically have this fellowship, uh, and they, they perhaps cry out to the Lord. Maybe if they're uh, maybe if they're kind of messy, or if they're Jews who are who are seeking to go back to the promised land, you know, hoping perhaps that with Israel there will be another temple rebuilt. But uh, that would be a all the Jews I've spoken of either ignore it, disregard it, or chalk it up to something that was and will never be again. Uh, and so it, it, it would be an inconsistency, to say the least, in most Jewish thought, unless you've done away with that portion uh, of, of their scriptures, which some more liberal Jews have. Yeah. Well, we've almost reached the moment of the day. Uh, a choir is about to start. Any other last thoughts? We can talk offline, too. I pray that Leviticus may be a little bit more accessible for you. Let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we see Jesus uh, in all the pages of Scripture, including Leviticus, uh, in a very real way. We thank you for uh, all of these different ways in which you show your purity, uh, your oneness, uh, your holiness, and uh, because of that, Father, our uh, unholiness and our uncleanness, uncleanness. And yet, Father, we thank you that you haven't left us there, uh, that you've shown how uh, you were there for those people, uh, your people in that time, in Leviticus's time. And yet, Father, how uh, after Jesus, we have seen all of it totally uh, and ultimately revealed. Father, thank you for the faith we have in Jesus. Help us hold, to, uh, hold fast to that and to see it in Leviticus. In Jesus' name, amen.